Greetings, my name is Alice, and once again, welcome to the Survivor Girl Podcast. Today, we are bringing on a very special guest and one that I'm very happy to have on and proud to know, and that is my good friend, Lisa. Lisa's going to be sharing her story of being both a caregiver as well as her own story of surviving cancer. So Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, Alice. It's so lovely to speak with you. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come home with me. So thank you for being my first and great guest to have on. So Lisa, oh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. So Lisa, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about mm-hmm. tell me about your husband and tell me what led you guys initially to go to the doctors. What was happening with Matt? So Matt had this chronic cough that wouldn't go away. And he went to, you know, a couple of doctors. They thought maybe he was having a sinus infection, but it was, it felt more like his in his lungs and, and said, no, you're fine. We since found out that they, uh, when they did their first simple blood work, they forgot to check the most basic thing of uh, the CBC or the CBC count, which they would have caught his leukemia is what it, what he ended up having earlier. So finally he just wasn't getting well. It was like four months. He wasn't getting well. He just felt sick all the time. And I'm like, okay, what is, you know, we had recently had some water damage in our house and I thought, oh gosh, maybe there's, you know, he's got something infectious going on. And, and our son um, is a type who was eight at the time, I believe is a type one diabetic and which makes him immunocompromised. And so I'm like, we need to go. We had heard about this infectious disease doctor. You know, he was an internist that specialized in that. So he goes to go get him checked and he calls me and and um, we go down to the doctor and he takes one look at him and feels his spleen and says, your spleen is the size of a football. And the reason why he was coughing is because it was pushing on his diaphragm. So they sent him across the street to get an emergency CAT scan. And then they send us home. And my father was babysitting my two young boys, six and eight. And so he had stayed for dinner. And we get a phone call during dinner and the doctor calls and says, I want both of you on the phone at the same time. And we're like, okay. And he says, you've got leukemia, which completely blindsided both of us and came back to the table. You know, he explained that we need to get in and and checked right away. There's two different kinds of leukemia that he was thinking that he had. One was we needed to get in the hospital within 24 hours. And one was there was another type of drug that they could start and, you know, keep him on and he could, you know, start that kind of at-home treatment. But they wouldn't know until he went in and had a bunch of tests. So we go back to the table and tell my father, who of course is stunned, and we don't say anything to the kids just yet. And all I said was, can you call the family? I couldn't call, I am, I'm the oldest of five. And so, and we're all very close. And I said, I can't, I can't make that phone call. Can you do that for us? And then Matt called and went after my father left and called his parents, who, by the way, his father was a colon cancer survivor. And he had had a tainted batch of chemo that completely wiped out his kidneys. And long story short, Matt was a kidney donor for him. So he only had one kidney. Now he's got his own cancer. So Matt's parents were able to call their oncologist and they said, okay, he can squeeze you in at his lunchtime tomorrow. Now, this, by the way, was September 10th, 2001. So the next morning we wake up and it's the September 11th. So not only is our personal world falling apart, the entire 
nation is falling apart. And I got to tell you, it was such an out-of-body experience. I just felt like I just wasn't even in my own universe. You know, waking up, we've got this terror and going on in our lives. And then we look up and there's planes and bombs going off. So we dropped the kids off at school. And at this point, they were still talking about that LA could be, you know, a next target. And I didn't know what to do with my children. And God bless that health aid. I told her what was going on. And she said, I said, I don't know if you have, we have to evacuate. I don't even know if you can reach me. We're going to be in a hospital. I don't know what's going to go on or whatever. And she said, I will take the two boys home. Here's my cell phone. You go take care of your husband. So that was the first blessing. We had a lot of little blessings along the way. So then we go to the doctor and he does a series of tests and he does a bone marrow biopsy. I don't know if anyone, if you know what a bone marrow biopsy is, or I'm guessing at the audience doesn't. So basically the patient lies on the table. They take the longest needle and the biggest syringe that you can see. They poke through the back of the top of your rear into the hip bone, directly into the bone with like this, I say it's an eighth inch boring needle and suck out bone marrow. It is one of the most painful things that you can go through. Half the patients insist on being knocked out for it, but my husband refused to be knocked out. So they take the test and he said, well, we're going to run the labs and we'll call you tonight and see if you have to go in. You know, he said, be ready to pack a bag. You may have to come in in the middle of the night and we'll start treatment immediately or, you know, we'll start you on this drug. So thank goodness the test came back and he was able to get on this new, uh, was brand new. Now it's a standard of care, Gleevec, that um, it was able to um, keep his leukemia at bay for the time being. He had, they had said that your your normal white blood cell count is like 10,000. His was at 600,000. So they were surprised that he hadn't stroked out or anything before that. But uh, that's the initial diagnosis of um, before he began treatment. So telling me all that up to this point, you haven't informed the children. How did you initially inform them about their dad's diagnosis? We tried to not use the word cancer, but we didn't hide it from him. We did say leukemia, but they were six and eight. So we figured okay. if they were, if for, we just figured it was less scary of a word than cancer. We did, you know, we gave them everything, but in outline form, you know, we didn't say he's going to have this treatment and that drug and this thing, and this, this is going to hurt. You know, like he, they were never there for any of the, you know, the, the bad procedures and all that kind of stuff, but they did know that he wasn't well and that we were working on getting him a better, but we just decided just, we'll, we'll, we'll use leukemia. We just felt for some reason it was less scary and they adore, you know, my husband was a man's man. He coached everything that they were in from five years old to literally the day he died. And they adored their father, you know, not that I felt any less love, but there was definitely a, you know, a, a father son's bonding going on there. And we wanted to protect that. So what was the process of treatment for Matt and how long did this continue? So he, through a series of different connections, we ended up at City of Hope to see the doctor there that had pioneered um, a lot of the treatment for leukemia. He ended up having what's called chronic myelogic leukemia. So they gave him this drug, Gleevec, and it kept his blood cell count down, cut the leukemia down. And that worked till about 2000, March of, no, I'm sorry, February of 2003. And then the drug just stopped working. He went in for his, bi-weekly tests and they said it's not working. 
And they had always said that if it stops working, we need to do a stem cell transplant. Because he only had one kidney, they were a little hesitant to do it because they were afraid it would lessen his chance of survival. There's only a 40% chance that you're going to come out the other end of a stem cell transplant. So I remember going in, I went with Matt to every single doctor's appointment, just because it was part of my coping skills. I wanted to be informed. I will say the doctor was amazing. The first time we met him, we were in his office for 45 minutes. He talked to my husband directly for about 20 of them, and then looked at me and said, okay, what do you need to know? And he did that in every single appointment. He really just was one of the most, I, I highly recommend the whole facility there and Dr. Foreman. But after a while, it stopped working. And I remember Matt saying, oh, and he would also, he was also doing bone marrow biopsies at every one of these appointments. I remember the first time I went there, they said, you might want to leave because I, you know, they can't handle it if I'm fainting. It is kind of gruesome. And I said, I'm not leaving him. And he said, she can handle it, which I did. But I remember holding his hand while they did it. And, uh, but every time he, he did it without anesthesia. But so we come back in February, the counts are off the charts. He's like, you have to have a stem cell. And he's like, well, I want to, our, our son's birthday, our younger son's birthday was in, I think within 10 days. I don't remember the exact date. He said, can I do it after Nick's birthday? And he said, you won't make it to Nick's birthday unless you get in the hospital now. So we did and we proceeded. It was an eight week process of him being in the hospital. Between his parents and I, he was never alone, except for maybe a couple hours on Sunday. We had a routine where my mom would come Sunday night and spend Sunday through Friday with us so she could get the kids up and get them fed and get them to school and pick them up from school. I would get up at 5.30 in the morning and drive. It was a 45 minute drive to the hospital and get there before the doctor did his rounds. So it's basically, I would be there around 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., maybe 6.30 to 6.30, the, the exact time. One, of, one or both of his parents would come and relieve me and spend the night with him. The The nurses are great, but when you're going through treatment and you're getting sick and, you know, you don't have time to call for the nurse, just was, you know, and it also made him feel better to have somebody there. I went there with my, as I said, it, the more information I have, the more in control I needed, I, I feel. And I feel like, and that's what I, that was part of my coping mechanism was, okay, let's control what I can. I had a notebook. I had my questions that I had for the doctor every day. I wrote down my answers. I dated it. I had them print out his blood work every day, which actually more than once came in handy because they said, what was he last week? And I said, oh, I got it right here. <laughs> so, but when it comes to a stem cell transplant, his sister, luckily his sister was a match. And so his poor sister, who was completely neophobic, was gracious enough and loving enough and gave the greatest gift of all to her brother. They give her medicine for three days to pump up her white blood cells and that medicine makes you sick and then all the time matt's in the hospital getting prepared for the donation circling back to my sister-in-law karen to harvest what they do the, the blood cells they put you on what's called a phoresis machine for 12 hours she's lying on this bed with a bedpan and she's got an IV and one arm pulling the blood out. It goes to the machine. It separates what they need. And then there's an IV on the other arm putting the rest of the stuff back in her. And so she did that for 12 hours. And all that you get maybe like a little, like one third of an IV bag. That's all they need. In the meantime, Matt goes in and the first thing they do is measure him for radiation. And what they're doing, they do full body radiation when it comes to a stem cell transplant. Basically, they're going to wipe out your entire immune system, get your white blood cells count down to close to zero as possible. So they bring you to death and bring you back up again. And so you go for front in the morning 
and back in the afternoon. And what they measure is they have to create a harness for you to keep you standing. Because you're fine maybe the first one or two, but by the you know third or fourth, you can't stand up on your own power because you're so weak. They also create a custom like lead vest for the front to kind of to attempt to protect the heart and lungs. So for 13 treatments, he went in and had the full body radiation. So morning front, evening back, back to bed, back to his bedroom. Of course, he's getting sicker the whole time. And then when that is all done, they get him ready and they give him, he was, they determined that he only needed one dose of chemo. So he had a day of chemo. And after the day of chemo, the next day he had the, the stem cell transplant. And this, this particular type just comes in like an IV. And then what they do is they put you in isolation because he has no, basically no immune system and hope his sisters will take over. Um, this is the most precarious. This is where they lose most of their patients. To see him, I had to come in with full PPE to spend time with him if I wanted to see him. Luckily, we had someone that took care of the kids on Saturday. And then on Sunday, that was the day that I would bring the boys to come see their dad for a couple hours. When he was in isolation, we were lucky enough to get the room that actually overlooked City of Hope. It has a beautiful Japanese garden with the koi pond. So they couldn't come in to physically see him in the room, but they could come to the window and wave to their dad on those Sundays that he was in, in the room. And all said and done, he had a little bit of complication while he was in the hospital, but all said and done, he was in the hospital for eight weeks. And then when he is able to come home, there is something called the, the 100 days. And the first 100 days are the most precarious. You don't leave the house. He's wearing a mask everywhere. We have to be super careful with the food that he can that he eats. First of all, what food he can tolerate, that was one thing. But everything had to be fresh and everything had to be, like if we opened a jar of mayonnaise, he could have the first swig of it you know, the first little, whatever you call it, when you stick a knife in a slab or whatever you want to call it, but he couldn't have the rest of it. Once it was open, it was contaminated. Same, so condiments. My father in a desperate attempt to try and do something to help his daughter and to whom he thought of as a son, went and ordered a case of the mustard, mayonnaise, ketchup, and relish packets, a case of each. Because <laughs> he can have, they can have the pet i was giving away those <laughs> but you couldn't have we couldn't have a fruit like if he wanted cantaloupe and we're going to slice it we had to really thoroughly wash the rind so there was no leftovers everything had to be freshly cooked and all this stuff and there was all this protocol of where he could go and where he couldn't go for the 100 days and you know we're at the first you're back at the doctor's office every two days and you're back there every week and then and so he made it through the initial treatment his sister's blood cells took over and we got through that phase. We always said he could create the perfect crime because if he ever had his DNA tested, like if he left blood somewhere, he tried, you know, something about those little CSI things, he tests a woman. So, wow. Because he had a sister. Yes, he, he had a sister thing. So we used to joke <laughs> with them all the time. But that was the start of his journey. He was technically in remission, but as you know, you know, when you come to the precipice of death and they bring you back up again, there's going to be consequences. And remission only means cancer free. It doesn't mean well. So that, you know, there's a long story that continues on from that, but I don't know if you had any questions on what I had, you know, talked about so far before we continue. So my question for you is what are, mm -hmm. I, I know that you're being very controlled at the time, but internally, what would you say that you're, you're feeling in some ways while you're dealing with all of this with Matt? 
it was a suppressed controlled panic, I guess. But I also, when I get over, not stimulated, but overstressed or over whatever, I tend to turn into like a robot mode. You know, because that's how I deal with it. I get very matter of fact, okay, we're going to do this. I can't panic in front of him. Can't. The, the only time I would break down is when he was being an idiot, want to go to the doctor. Like one day he had a flu and 103 fever, which is highly dangerous for someone that just went through cancer treatment and had to scream at him. But most of the time it was just this ever. And I, I would say I was his century. I was very like, I'm, I was paying attention. I was, I was his advocate. I was his century. And then on top of that, I'm a mom. And I've got two boys that are that are wondering where daddy is and if daddy's going to come home and when's daddy coming home. And I had to be strong for them, make sure that their their needs are taken. And I don't know how people that didn't thank God I'm I was close to my in-law. I was close to my in-laws as well as, you know, my family was close by. They were both they're both close emotionally and they're both close physically, you know, so they can get to us at any time and help take care of, of our children and run the household and clean the household. I I, there, I just have the bandwidth to get up in the morning, spend my 12 hours and come home and, and kiss the boy, you know, help get the boys good night and then collapse. And that was just kind of this routine of always making sure that he was being taken care of and just watching the entire time. There was no other, you've always got a worry simmering, a wonder, is he going to come home? What's going to happen? I knew at that point that we, you know, we were high school sweethearts and we had been planning our lives together since I was 16 and he, since I was a junior and he was a senior in high school. And I knew that we weren't going to, at that point, we probably weren't going to be, you know, grow old and have grandkids together. This was just, let's just see how long we could, you know, let's just try and get as much time with him and keep him around as long as we possibly can. But yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was a controlled stress. I just didn't, I didn't have time to, I, you know, I shut it off. I didn't have time to, to, you know, occasional breakdowns in the shower. But other than that, I didn't have time to panic. I had a job to do. And um, that was how I cope. I, you know, with my job. That makes sense. And so that as time progressed, when did it start becoming clear that he was going to transition? So when you go through a stem cell transplant, you get someone else's immune system put into your body and they are now treating your, that new immune system that's taken over. It's almost kind of sci-fi is now sees the original body, the host as a foreign entity. Mm -hmm. And they have this, there's this thing called graft versus host disease. And it's something that happens with every transplant. And it is something that it, you, you walk a fine line. You don't want the graft, which is the new, you know, his sister's immune system to take over so much that it kills the host, but you don't want the host to come back because the host is the one that had leukemia. So it's this constant battle. He developed, there's different types of it, different degrees. His was pretty bad. And so when he started to have these side effects from the, the treatment, that's when I kind of realized, okay. So he, the first thing it did was it attacked all his mucous membranes. So his stomach, his, his lungs, his eyes, he ended up almost losing his eyes. He, it, his eyeballs completely dried up to the point where he couldn't, like felt like someone was throwing sand in his eyes all the time. So they sent him to UCLA 
to go see this eye specialist. And I went with him most of the time. And then one time I don't go, they come back and he goes, well, they're going to sell my eyelids shut. My husband was a jokester. And I'm like, you're nah, you know, funny, very funny. He goes, oh no, they're going to sell my eyelids shut. He, uh, he goes, they don't have any hope for me. And I'm like, oh, hell no. This man's been to hell and back. And he went back to work. God love his company. They made all these accommodations for him. He went back to work. If he has to show he will let if you sew his eyes shut and he can't work he can't see his children he will just that'll kill him. so i got on the internet and by the way you know this is when the internet was just in its early stages and found a doctor in boston that created a certain type of contact that will save people with his kind of disease in his eyes so we ended up going back there and they uh and they go you're there for a week they they try all these different types of shapes. They, they cut and make these contacts that you fill with water every morning to put in his eyes, to bathe his eyes with water. And it worked, saved his eyes. So we're in Boston for a week, we come back. And so now he's got that. So now every morning he's got to take, you know, 15, 20 minutes to clean the contacts, put the stuff in, put them in his eye, you know, that. Then he starts doing the graft host also attacks your skin and they get what's a form of scleroderma, which is hardening of the skin. So he starts getting these big, shiny, dark patches all over his body. First thing it did was it created these massive sores on his feet. And then, oh my gosh, I just, I just realized I forgot part of the treatment. <laughs> he, uh, a month after we got home, he started having pain in his hip and they discovered what's, I forgot the name of a tumor, but it was like a cluster of the leukemia cells that had kind of stayed in the hip area. So he had to go back for some more radiation and kill that little cluster, but it left him with a permanent limp. So now he's got a limp. He's got these contacts. He's got the hardening of skin that's that's limiting his range of motion. He can't lift his arms. He's got sores on his feet. So getting ready every morning for him, the kids never really saw this, but it was hell. It was just pure hell for him to put, he had to do his eyes. He had to wrap his feet up and try and walk. And he worked 40 hours a week. He coached both boys in their football and basketball. So that's two evenings a week. And then all day Saturdays, we were doing sports and never complained. Never once complained about, I mean, I'd see him once and I'd see him, but he never complained. But I'm, I'm watching him and I'm seeing, okay. I can tell, you know, I'm realizing more and more that he is not going to be with us forever. Um, and I am on constant, as I said before, century duty. I'm on a constant, I've got this, I've got a constant worry percolating. The when is circling through your head all the time. When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? What's can't get him sick? Got to do this. What am I, you know, that's just constant, constant in my head all the time. And just this burden that you're carrying, but honestly, you don't really realize that you're carrying. And then, so we were on August 23rd in 2008, which was five, about, but about five years after his initial transplant, we went to a football game. It was my younger son's next football game. All the 13, he was coaching the 13 year olds. My older son, Albert, who was 15 and just started, a, Nick was a, was a uh, eighth grade and just starting eighth grade. And Albert was in his first two weeks of high school and he was helping his dad coach. And he went into a cardiac arrest on the football field in the, in front of the entire team. And they luckily, one of his, well, lucky or I, but you know, it's an odd word to say, but but one of his co-coaches was an EMT, so he started CPR immediately. There was another friend of ours that was in the stands, was a paramedic, and they worked on him for 18 minutes to try and revive him. The 
ambulance was circling. They couldn't figure out how to get him in. And I could just tell that it wasn't good. I had always thought that like he'd get sick and get like pneumonia. We'd go to the hospital and everyone could come and say their goodbyes. And that's how I figured that was in my little scenario in my brain. That's how it would happen. I did not expect this. I did not expect a full crowded stadium, a bunch of trying to, I told them because I knew that Matt would want, I said, keep playing the game. He's not going to want his entire team watching him go through this. And, uh, you know, he loved those boys and he loved them. And that was one of the hardest things. We, they, you know, they take us to the, we, we rushed to the hospital. They put him in the ambulance. They wouldn't let me ride in the ambulance with him, which I went, okay, that's not, that's not good if they're not letting me go in the ambulance with them. So we, my friend drove because I was in no shape to drive. And we follow him, we get to the, get to the hospital. They rush him in. I'm not allowed back into the room until a priest comes out and sees me and talk to, counsels me. I'm like, okay, another, another thing. They have me sign papers. I couldn't remember how to spell my name. I've been writing that name since I was 16. You know, before we were married for 10 years, nine years, I practiced writing my name and I couldn't write it at that point. My brain just, I couldn't do it. So they put us in, they have like a little family room behind, there's the big waiting room past just those, you know, those big doors. There's a little room where they put family members of people that are dying. So I'm there with the boys. And after the priest comes up and talks to me for a little bit, they bring me back to see him and you know they're shocking him it's not working and they came up and said you know we don't think he's gonna make it how long do you want us to try and I told them I said well is there any chance for right now and they said there's a slim I said well then go until you don't think there's any chance. yeah I said don't overdo it but I want to be able to have good conscience tell my children that I did all their can you know I didn't give up on their father immediately and so they did and he was pronounced and I go back to my boys and God love my older son. He took, he's 15 years old and he's the one that started calling on the family. And he's the one that's telling them that first he called and told him that they, he was in the hospital and then he had to call and tell him that he didn't make it. And I don't know how my son did that. I couldn't do it. I remember my younger son looking up to me with tears in his eyes saying, mommy, you know, mama, I thought you said he was going to make it. And all I could say was, I thought he was, honey. And uh, so we sat there for a while. And the one thing they don't tell you when you go to a hospital and your loved one dies is what's the protocol for how long you stay there? It was really weird. I know it seems kind of funny, but it's like, you got to leave them. You don't want to leave them. What do you, what is the, you know, I just was, it was just a weird thing. I didn't know. And it just struck me as odd. Okay. Someone needs to tell us what, how long you're supposed to sit here. So we go out. And in the waiting room is all the fellow coaches and the entire football team. And I had to tell them. And watching their face fall was one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life. Seeing their faces and these grown men, honestly, the kids are where I knew the kids were going to be heartbroken. But the, but the devastation on these and his fellow coaches, they still talk about how much it rang. It was so, so it was, you know, it was a very traumatic experience which has had ramifications you know it's didn't realize later until like 10 years later that we were suffering from ptsd as a result right. but so yeah that was what had happened to with him with his cancer journey and what was your initial feeling after he transitioned what were you going through at that time you know, it's odd and it's one of those things that everybody goes through, but you never, you still feel guilty about it. You know, I felt relief, but on a, on a couple different ways. I felt relief that I could, I could be first and foremost, that he was out of pain because he was, you know, every, every step that he took, he was in pain. And, and I, I mean that quite literally, the man was never out of pain. 
So there was that. There was relief that I could finally, in one sense, be off duty. I didn't have to, you know, look for it anymore. And there was a big relief that cancer didn't rule our lives anymore. That, you know, this big ugly monster wasn't the one that was controlling everything that we did. And then, of course, there's the panic of which comes a little later of what am I going to do without him? How am I going to? I mean, I knew that I was smart enough and capable enough to, you know, and I knew my I knew my strengths as a mom that I wasn't going to do as far as I was, you know, I was going to do the best I could. But I couldn't let myself collapse because of that. But it took me forever to figure out who I was as a single person, as a single mom, as I resented that someone called me a year later, a single mom. I went, no, I'm not. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to accept the title. And, you know, when you start dating someone when you're a teenager and you form your adult beliefs and your sense of self, you grow to adulthood together. It's a big severing. You know, you don't, I honestly took me a long time to figure out who Lisa was other than being Matt's. We were always a team. It was always Matt and Lisa. Always. Like it was never said individually. So it was very odd to figure that out. But those are the initial reactions. And it is, it's another journey that you go through and you go through growths and spits and spurts and, and you make mistakes. But yeah, that those were my initial reactions, which were enough to handle. <laughs> the time. So what would you say internally changed the most for you? What about you had to change in order to continue on? You know, I kind of kept that same mode. You know, I took all that vigilance that I put towards Matt and the cancer to being the best mom I could be for my, my children that had lost their primary male role model at the most during puberty. <laughs> so um, I just, I went into, okay, now I got to be both parents, which in itself was hard. I didn't know how to be, you know, I knew how to be a mom. I had to learn how to be a dad. And, you know, I since learned, I, you know, probably shouldn't have expected that of myself. And, you know, I, I know I failed a lot, but I did the best I could with what I had at the moment. But I went into hype. I was the team. I kind of took over his role with the team. I was the team mom. I was, they were on the football. I was a team mom. I was a team manager. I was in charge of everything to do with that football team. I did everything but coach. The coach did coaching and then I did everything else. So all through their high school years, I poured myself into my kids as much as I, I could. And, and I was still, but I was still trying to figure out how to be myself and how to feel secure. There were times I would, you know, friends would, I would meet people for, you know, after a game or, or every, you know, let's go meet a claim jump or something for a drink. I couldn't walk in by myself. I couldn't walk in and be the first one there. If I knew someone was waiting in there, I could, I could go and go meet them in there, but I couldn't be the one waiting for someone else. Cause I just felt so raw and exposed. And it literally gave me a complete panic attack to have to, so I would wait for people outside in the parking lot. I'd either wait in front of the restaurant because I was always early. So I was always the first one there. I'd sit in my car and look out the window and, oh, look, I just got here too. <laughs> you know? so, but that's what I did for, you know, about the next four years. So years later, now you have to face your own battle with cancer. Right. Now, what, what was your reaction to realizing that now you were having to face a form of cancer? It was kind of surreal because it wasn't something that I was, you know, expecting. I since found out my friend's sister is a very well-known physician and she's like, well, of course she's going to get cancer because of all the stress that she went through for, for eight years with her husband. I mean, it's, it's actually a common thing, um, but it 
was just very odd. I mean, and then I had the, the hardest part was telling my children. My oldest son was away at college. Just the other one was a senior in high school. Knowing the minute I said I had it, because now they're, you know, they're on the path, they're, they're on the verge of adulthood. I can't say, oh, it's, I can't call it something else. I have to call it breast cancer. And knowing that it's just going to send waves of panic through them. They lost their dad to cancer. Now mom's got it. What the hell? My son and was up in Santa Barbara and he's like, should I come home? And I'm like, no, no, no. There's nothing you can do. What are you going to do? Finish school. So yeah, that was, that my initial reaction was kind of just a little bit of stunned. Okay, now what do I do? I don't know. So that was in it. That was my initial reaction. So knowing what Matt went through and now you facing this, tell mm-hmm. me about survivor's guilt. Did you feel your own battle was, let's say, insignificant in comparison to what Matt went through? Oh, completely. So much so that I didn't even, mine was, I had stage one, the size of a pea. I only needed a lumpectomy. I had, I didn't have to have chemo. I did have to have radiation, but it was localized radiation. It was, you know, I didn't have to have a harness like my husband did. I wasn't going to, once I went through treatment, I had less than a 3% chance of it reoccurring. There was very little doubt that I was going to survive it. There was maybe a 1% chance that I wasn't going to survive what I had compared to my husband only had a 40% chance surviving and ultimately he did it so yeah as much as i just didn't feel like my cancer counted as much you know as much it was you know okay i mean to me it was more like a really bad flu that lasted for a year <laughs> i mean as when i think about what and and even when my husband got sick i researched what hospital we should go to what's what's mm-hmm. going to have the best i narrowed them down i asked people like asked advice and we purposely went out of our local area i mean luckily i live in the la area so i've got a bunch of people within an hour but you know there was a hospital right down the street i was like you're not going there they're not good but it was fine for for me, you know, I, I can, mine's not that bad. I can go there. And, you know, I did have some, I had, I had decent care. I'm not going to say I didn't have decent care, but they weren't like tops in the nation care. But part of it was too, I didn't have a spouse now that could take care of kids and stuff like that. I didn't have the luxury of being away for back and forth, you know, having someone take me to a doctor's office that was an hour away and bring me back. So that was also another reason why I picked the local the place in my local community. But yeah, I, I just didn't think that I honestly didn't like telling people that I had breast cancer, even though I had a lumpectomy and I had radiation and it has caused some some long-term damage because of the radiation. But again, it just didn't seem worthy of the title, which is kind of a stupid thing, but that's how my brain was working. Saying that, how did you ultimately end up working through those feelings? I actually, I didn't realize what I was, I wasn't self-analyzing for a long time. Caregivers, and then I, you know, I still felt myself in a caregiver mode because mm-hmm. I had my children. You tend to dismiss your own feeling and your own, and then if, if you do feel sorry for yourself, how is how you put it, you feel guilty tremendous amount of guilt and then you're like i can't do this anymore and then you feel guilty about that i've just found out that the depression rate among caregivers is more than double it is among them patients and but the first thing i did is again i realized after the fact that i delayed my grieving until the kids were out of school i just put it aside just kind of put it on the shelf don't have time to deal with that you know, of course i had some crying jags of course but i didn't really i didn't i delayed the process of grieving 
And when they went, kids went to school, I've always been a writer from time to time. And I started writing and I found this online outlet that said, hey, your writing's pretty good. We'll publish it. And I just started purging everything in pieces about losing my husband, handling grief, being a, a, a mother of two boys without their dad. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I remember the first couple of things I wrote, my mother called me in a panic going, oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, actually, this is is helping me. This is helping me grieve. I didn't want to go see a counselor, which in hindsight was probably the wrong, I know was the wrong thing. I should have gotten counseling immediately. So should have my children. But I, um, this was my way to purge all the guilt, all the pain, let people know what was really going on. Because as far as everyone else knew, I was doing great, you know, look at, and, and I was just so strong for doing this and for raising the boys without their dad and and then going through cancer myself, she, you know, look at you, look at how wonderful you are. If one more person called me strong, I really wanted just to slap him. It was either slap him in the face or kick him in the groin, one or the other. Because <laughs> if you only knew what was going on behind in my brain, and in my heart and in my gut that you would not call me strong. And please don't call me strong. It's I don't want to be strong. I want to break down, but I didn't feel like I could. And this writing was a way for me to, everyone to know what I was really feeling, but not having to do it face to face. It's really hard when you telling people, telling people that your husband has cancer or telling people that you have cancer. Because the first thing is they do is they, you, you see their face fall and then they try and hide it and they bring it up. And then they start grieving and then you're taking care of their grief. And I'm like, well, excuse me. I, I don't have time to take care of you. I remember a couple years after I last met, lost Matt. And I it actually was even after I had cancer, we went to my high school reunion. I went to my two good friends, which by the way, Matt was the star athlete. I went to a very small school. He was just, everyone knew him. This is the first time I'm going to a reunion now after I look his death. And I said, if anyone, I said to my girlfriends, I'm like, I just want to have fun tonight. If someone comes up and gives me that oh I'm so sorry face please just take me away or change the conversation or do something right so that's all I asked of them so we walk in and one guy comes up that I knew he was a crier in high school I knew damn well he was and he comes right. up to me and he says just starts bawling and they just bolt and I'm like I'm now I'm pissed I'm like what <laughs> I just want to have fun in my reunion. Why do I have to console this guy? It's what first time I'm out and about. But yeah, you you just find these. But that was my the writing was my way of, of processing my grief, albeit almost ten years later. But that's how I that's how I process it, and actually gained like a little following and worked with other people in the process of other people that read my writing that had gone through the same thing. And I kind of formed a little you know writing community, which really helped me. So what advice would you offer someone who is helping a friend or loved one through treatment? There's, well, there's two things. Cause I don't think you can, that your loved one needs to have an advocate. And I'm very proud of what I did for that part. I mean, there's always someone, and I will say anyone that's going through cancer treatment get yourself an advocate, get yourself that's going to come with you to the to the doctor's appointments and stay with you in the hospital. Because you know, there's this you have cancer brain, and it's not even the cancer, your your brain is is not functioning correctly, because it's so overwhelmed. So someone that can ask the questions for you, someone that can call you out when you, you know, the doctor asks you when you say you're fine, and you're like, Oh, hell no, you're not that kind of thing. And then do that. But on the other hand, don't beat yourself up for when you fail. Don't expect too much of yourself. Don't uh, please go to 
to when they offer you, because most hospitals do, especially if they have an oncology center, when they offer you family counseling or you get counseling, go. And it's okay to feel guilty and it's okay to feel sorry for yourself. And it's okay to go through your, you're not lessening their cancer anymore. You are not, you know, you're not diminishing yourself. Take some time for yourself because if you're not well, you're not taking care of, you can't take care of them properly. And I since found that, you know, I since realized that there were things in our personal relationship that that's where my inabilities to cope were coming out. And I, I always feel guilty that I didn't give him the mu- as much emotion emotional support as I should have during his final year because I was just spent and I wasn't taking care of myself and I just didn't have anything to give. So please get yourself some counseling and take the help when friends and loved ones offer it. You're going to need it. Even when you, even if it's a meal, take the draw, you know, take, let let someone take your kids so you can, you know, just sit in the tub or it's not selfish. Take care of yourself. It's you're preserving yourself and your loved one at the same time. And last, what would you tell someone who they themselves are damned with cancer currently to help them get through it? Again, I'm a firm ab- thing for, for advocacy for yourself as well. Be informed. When I was going through my radiation, when it was all done, I was still exhausted. Like, you know, you, 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 they say you're going to be tired. Well, six weeks later, I still it was all I could do to get out of bed. And the doctor kept saying, oh, you're just taking a little longer to get through it. And, you know, of course, I'm curious now. So I'm looking up online. Thank God for the Internet. And found out that the type of radiation that I had is common for your thyroid to be put for it to damage your thyroid. And I went to the doctor. I said, I'm still exhausted. And he goes, well, it's normal. I said, I want you to test my thyroid. And he's like, well, why? You didn't have to. I said, please test my thyroid. And it it was shot. And the minute I got on, you know, Synthroid is probably one of the easiest medications to take on the planet. Within like three days, I felt like a new woman. So when you don't feel like something's right, you don't feel like something's going on. Even when it comes to your diagnosis, I was the first one that's like, something's not right went to the doctor and they found something. So you need to advocate for yourself and don't be intimidated by your doctor. Write your questions down because you're going to forget when you go in and keep like a little journal. That's my my best thing. And then the only thing I did have one doctor tell me about going on the internet that check the dates of the articles that you're reading, especially since the internet's been around for a good long time now and everybody publishes everything and especially in cancer, they're making new treatments every day. If you find an article that's dated 2012 chances are it may not be the latest and greatest treatment so always try try, if you can check the date of what you're looking and then give yourself a break and allow people to help you so but lisa i'm so thankful and so appreciative of you coming on my podcast you have given me so much to think about and you have been a tremendous guest so i just want to thank you again for for coming on with me today Oh, thank you. I consider you one of my champions, warriors to look up to. So I'm honored that you asked me to be a part of this today. And thank you again. And you guys, thank you all for listening. And we will be back again soon. 